We are back at Making It Work in Montana. Today we have a very timely guest. We've obviously noticed that the economy is going through uh, just a crazy time right now due to the big uh, deal, the coronavirus and other matters. And today is actually Friday, the last day that we can do any kind of business as usual. And I wanted to bring in a guest who knows a lot about finances and knows how to weather a storm and everybody needs to get ready to um, just just do the best for their family and their uh, their people that they work with and their employees and so a good thing to do right now is to be thinking about it and to make them plans and so today's guest is a, a friend of mine that I've, I've known since uh, the late 90s and since the early 90s, he has built a professional financial services career in Whitefish, Montana. Uh, he knows more about what it's like to making it work in Montana than most of the people that I know. And my guest today is uh, Joe Coco. Welcome, Joe. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. This is, uh, we're here at uh, Black Diamond Mortgage, Whitefish Mortgage Central. <laughs> yeah, we're in the bunker at uh, making it work in Montana, keeping our distance. But... Uh, Joe's got a lot of fantastic experience that's relevant to what's going on right now. And so, uh, Joe, if you wouldn't mind, just to introduce yourself to folks, could you take us from where did you, where were you born and, and how did you um, end up landing as a uh, in Whitefish, Montana as a financial professional? Just give us a quick uh, brief overview. Absolutely. I, uh, I was born just outside of Chicago. My, my mother is from the city of Chicago, but my dad was a career Marine, and we bounced around all over the world. In fact, college was the first time I spent more than three years in the same place. I graduated from the University of Colorado, Boulder, go Buffs, in uh, 1985. I had a Marine Corps ROTC scholarship uh, to the University of Colorado, and in graduated, uh, went into the infantry, spent uh, 18 months in the infantry, and spent the rest of my career in reconnaissance uh, with, with 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion in both Hawaii and over in uh, Okinawa, Japan. Spent some time at Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, was in the Philippines in 1992 when Mount Pinatubo, the volcano, erupted. That was pretty interesting and somewhat appropriate uh, um, experience for what we're going through right now, watching people panic. Um, I uh, resigned my commission from the Marine Corps in 1993. I started working with Edward Jones originally, and then in 2009, I went out on my own and started my own investment firm, Coco Enterprises. Uh, I've always been fairly interested in, in money. Uh, when I was a little kid, I cut lawns for a living, and I remember one time my mom coming in and saying, you have over $500 in your sock drawer. Now, back in those days, I was making $5 an hour when minimum wage was like $2.30. So even back then, there was opportunity for folks who wanted to go out and hustle. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a lieutenant stationed in, in, in Hawaii, my, uh, uh, a buddy of mine was, was investing through a broker, and the, his broker was having a dinner seminar down in Honolulu, and I got invited. And I said, hey, Linda, why don't we go down and get this free dinner, and, uh, um, and we can make a date out of it. So we went down to Honolulu and sat through this seminar, and the, and the advisor gave this presentation on the richest man in Babylon. And for our listeners, that is a great stocking stuffer for your kids who are in high school and college. It's a great way to learn about money. It's a small book, but very impactful. But the presentation 
the richest man in Babylon, is that just invest 10% of everything you make and do that over a lifetime and you won't be poor. And the, and the presenter was, was telling us, hey, if you do what I tell you, by the time you retire, you're going to be a millionaire. And I thought, wow, I don't even know any millionaires. There's no millionaires in my family. I didn't have any neighbors who were millionaires. So the idea of being a millionaire was very intriguing. So I signed up and uh, back in those days, 10% of my paycheck was about $100 a month. Uh, not a lot of money, but it certainly was a lot to me. And for our listeners who were alive back in 1987, you remember Black Monday in October, the stock market dropped over 20% in one day. And I was actually at uh, US Army Airborne School learning how to jump out of perfectly good airplanes while that happened. So I really wasn't uh, privy to what was going on in the world until I got back and saw my statement and saw that my account had dropped almost 50% in value in the matter of a couple of months. And the first thought that went through my mind is that my advisor was stealing from me, that uh, my gosh, there is no way I could have lost this much money this fast. That just doesn't make sense. But the advisor, he talked me into staying and he actually talked me into uh, investing $200 a month because now I was getting jump pay and uh, so I had a little extra money and he says, you know, if I were you, Joe, instead of investing 100 a month, I did do 200. And I remember in those days, Dave, we had the phones that were connected to the, to the kitchen wall. So I go, hey, Linda, uh, Bob says we should invest 200 much. She goes, no, don't do it. I said, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> but what happened, Dave, is as the stock market was going down and I was putting in 200 a month, I was buying more shares. And in a few months, the market recovered and all those extra shares I bought at 200 a month, they went up. And now I'm really interested in watching my, my statements and I'm seeing the relationship between buying stocks when they were cheap and, uh, and when they go up in value, you, you make money. At that point, it really cooled my jets. And to this day, um, I tell everybody who will listen that Bob Sweet made my family into the, to the financial situation we have today because I was not his biggest client with $560 in his account, but he took the time to, to talk me off the ledge and said, Joe, don't do this, buy more. And I did. And uh, our financial situation is a testament to his good service. So, so just that, that situation was a way to apply some really sound traditional financial principles in the middle of a crisis and then get the rewards for probably not doing what everybody else is doing. Absolutely. Everybody else was, was running to the exits. And, and, and Bob said, look, they're having a fire sale on Wall Street. They, they, they slash prices on everything. Everything's on sale. You ought to buy some. Now, when you go to the, to the store, do you buy tuna fish when it goes up in price or do you like to buy it when it's on sale? And I said, well, I like to get a good deal. And he goes, well, everything's a good deal right now. <laughs> and it, it, it sounded like a sales pitch at the time, but he was absolutely right. But to your point, is that sometimes you got to do what everybody else is not doing. Right. And have those principles in advance so you can be calm and know that you're doing the right thing. Exactly. Exactly. Now, one of the things that that particular brokerage firm did is they gave us these trifold folders. And when you get your statement, they encouraged you to write the number of shares that you bought, the dollar amount that you invested, and how many shares uh, you could buy with the money you had invested so that by doing that tactile exercise, you actually saw the relationship between buying shares when they were cheap, uh, when they went down in price. Um, and then once, you, once you're calm, I mean, that was back in 1986 when I started, 1987 when the market crashed. This is now you know, 2020. 
I've been investing at least 10% of my paycheck during all that time. So I've been through the, you know, the market crash in 87 and 2000 through 2002 and the financial crash of 2008. And recently is that I'm looking in this, you know, the seat cushions in our, in our home sofas for extra change because I've been buying stocks as the prices have been going down. Sure. So when I, when I met Joe in the uh, late 90s, we, we started to get to know each other and, and become friends through church. And also, um, I, was, I was getting started trying to build you know, my career. I hadn't figured out what I was going to do yet, but I was networking with Joe. And uh, at one point, he had uh, brought my wife and I into his office. And um, we, basically, we were just trying to get situated as a new couple who've been married just about five or six years. And um, as particular to knowing what to do at the beginning of a financial crisis, I wanted to mention that at the last financial crisis, Joe gave me some advice like this. And I didn't want any part of it. Um, I was watching what was going on, and uh, it, this is going to sound really stupid right now, but um, right at the end of the last, or right before the last financial crisis went full blown, I did not listen to Joe, and I decided to build a spec house. Which, obviously, when you look back, that was probably the worst thing you could do, right, leading up to the real estate crash. Um, and so, as we're leading into some tough times, um, I'm looking back, going, "Man, I wish I'd listened to Joe." So I'm bringing Joe in so that we can get some good advice. And um, just before we get into some really practical stuff, because I want Joe to talk about some real practical things that are going to help, um, I think part of the valuable way of looking at how to deal with times where things aren't easy would just be to take a quick uh, review of uh, how Joe started his career, because I've heard the story before. And so Joe, when you decided to start out as a financial professional, the way I've heard the story is um, you did not have very much money and you were going to go ahead and become a uh, financial professional. So tell us a, a quick, just uh, how did that go? What did you do? And uh, how did it work out for you? Well, uh, to be honest, we did have some funds when we moved to Montana because I had been investing since 1986 and I got out in 1993. But uh, when we came up here, as everybody in small business knows, small businesses are cash vacuum cleaners. They just suck the cash right out of you. And for the first couple of years that we were in Whitefish, it felt like nobody in Whitefish would do business with us. Uh, the company that I'd been working for earlier um, had quite a bit of turnover, and this was a small town. And uh, there were 17 competitors in the business exactly the same time that I was here. And I worked literally 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and it just felt like I wasn't getting any traction. So we just blew through all of the savings that I had saved up to all those years in the Marine Corps, just getting the business up and running. I, I started my business going door to door, uh, just like the Fuller Brush Salesman. And I'd walk out and I'd say, hey, I'm Joe Coco. I have an investment firm here in town. Please do business with me. And people were like, you know, you seem like a really nice fella, but uh, the company you work for, uh, there was four people before you and you'll probably be gone in two years anyway. So uh, um, thank you very much, but uh, we're not interested. And I was really getting frustrated and desperate. So what I did is I went up to Libby. And Libby at that time only had one financial advisor and he was primarily doing business with people in the town of Libby. But there was all kinds of folks who were moving to Libby from California and Oregon and Washington who were living out in the woods. So I would go out and knock on doors in the woods and I'd meet these people that had worked for Boeing or some other large company in Seattle or Portland 
and they had these 401ks and their advisors were not licensed in Montana. So I got that business. And one thing about business, and you'd probably know this as well, Dave, is that success breeds success, is that people want to do business with successful people. So after a few years of, uh, of uh, struggling in Whitefish, people realized I wasn't going anyplace. And then all of a sudden, the business just came rolling in. I mean, there was, a, there was times where uh, I led my, my firm in, in Montana for new accounts. I was opened up 18, 20 accounts a month uh, in the five through 10 year period in my career. And after the five year period, I, I stopped knocking on doors and I really wasn't advertising. The business just kind of exploded on its own. Well, that was a great point because what I wanted to hear you say was that um, if I was a business in the flathead right now and I'm planning on doing this and being successful in the long haul, my ability to succeed through this crisis is going to pay exponentially once everybody realizes that I'm one of the businesses that can make it through a crisis like this. That's kind of what I heard you say. Well, Whitefish is an interesting town because people are nice but they generally are not all that enthusiastic about doing business with the new guy. So you have got to survive for five years before the town basically says, okay, it looks like you're not going away. So now I'm I'm planning on doing business with you. And it's hard because sometimes in a big city, it's easier because people just mean to you to your face. But in Whitefish, people are nice to you to your face, but they still don't do business with you. (laughs) (laughs) Just smile and wave, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's get into the practical stuff because, um, as I said, starting tomorrow, the governor has a stay-at-home order. Um, Prior to this, pretty much the economy already looks like it's doing really poorly at the moment. And so this is not going to help. Mm -hmm. And so on the other side of this, there's all kinds of theories on what's going to happen. But absolutely, it would make sense to be uh, preparing for something difficult to navigate to get on the better side. And so I wanted to come up with kind of a few scenarios and have you just talk about, you know, what you think is a great strategy. Um, kind of three different, three to four different scenarios. So the first, and these are all gonna be uh, completely different, but first one is, uh, let's let's say that you're, uh, you moved to Whitefish and you've been just kind of ski bumming and hanging out. You were gonna get your career later, so this wasn't on your agenda, but you just found out that because you're in tourism that you've been laid off, you were paycheck to paycheck. You did actually plan to one of these days, get your act together and and get a real job, but that's your reality right this moment. Uh, What do you do to get through the crisis? And then, uh, you know, what would you recommend to that young man or woman who just kind of found themselves sitting in that situation, getting ready to, to deal with the next few months? Well, if you've uh, if you came to Whitefish to enjoy yourself and uh, and have a good time, and but you are planning on uh, uh, starting to adult, then uh, uh, an opportunity like this, the first thing you need to do is hang out with positive people, because I can tell you that uh, during times of panic, there are plenty of pessimists out there that are going to drag you down. But you know what? There's also lots and lots of optimists who are out there as well. So the first thing that I would do is, is pick and choose my friends wisely. And I would hang out with people who give me good gas and avoid the people that uh, essentially talk about how the sky is falling. The next thing that I would do is I would take an assessment of, of, of my current situation because many people are in better financial shape than they actually think they are. Because you go, oh, I don't have any money in the bank, but that doesn't mean that you have negative net worth. It's quite possible you have some skis in the uh, in the garage. You might have a canoe. 
uh, um, uh, or a kayak. Uh, you might have a, an extra vehicle that you don't necessarily need right now. And when cash is short, you might want to go ahead and convert some of those things into cash to get you through the tough times. Now, when we first came here and we were blowing through our savings, it got to the point where uh, our savings was just about gone, Dave, and we had to sell our piano. And Linda loved the piano that we had, but we had two babies in the house and they had to eat. So we sold our piano and we sold, our, I don't know, four or $500, not a whole lot of money, but that four or $500 got us through the next mortgage. That does not mean that we don't have a piano today. In fact, we have a much nicer piano today than, uh, than the one we had originally that we sold. So if you have a pair of skis that you're in love with or a kayak that you just really enjoy, if you sell it now, it does not mean you're going to be without skis and kayaks forever. But what it does mean is that you're going to be able to afford your skis and kayaks in the future. So do an assessment. Take a look at all the things that you have. The other thing is that any time there's a crisis, there is also opportunity. And I'm seeing signs all over the valley for, that people are hiring, particularly the grocery stores and delivery takeout folks. Uh, I was talking to my secretary, Erica, and she has a friend from Billings who uh, has done very well for himself financially and is a day trader. Um, he makes his living uh, managing his own portfolio. But he has a side gig delivering food, and he's making $600 a week. He says he can make twice that, but he goes, why would I? I, I don't need it. I just want a little extra pocket change. So in this particular scenario, this guy, all he does is deliver uh, food from different restaurants to people who are shut-ins, and he's making $600 a week. There's absolutely no reason why people in the Whitefish can't do the same thing. What I would say is that you got to be on your A-game and don't get sucked into just grasping for the low-hanging fruit. And I'm seeing a lot of folks, Dave, who are waiting for those unemployment checks to come rolling in, or they're hoping to get their $1,000 stimulus check. And what it's, what it's doing is it's killing their spirit. Because if things get tough, keep your eyes open because there is lots and lots of opportunities out there for people who keep their eyes and ears open. After Katrina, it was amazing the numbers of folks who lived around Louisiana who figured out that what people needed in Louisiana more than anything else was strong backs and chainsaws. And they were going down and they were making $500 to $1,000 a day cutting wood and removing uh, uh, debris out of people's yards because they saw the opportunity. And I can tell you, if we're in the middle of a crisis, somewhere in this crisis, there's going to be opportunities for the folks to keep their eyes open. That's good advice. And so, yeah, I think the best piece I got out of that was if you're laid off, you don't necessarily have to be laid off right now. No. And, and, and people say, well, why should I get a job if I'm going to get unemployment? Well, if you're looking for the long game and if you want to think like a, a wealthy person, a wealthy person says, hey, I need to increase my personal signaling value in the marketplace. And if your resume shows that there were breaks in your resume, they're going to say, well, why from March until May of 2020 were you not working? Well, that was during the coronavirus thing. Well, that entrepreneur who's hiring people is going, yeah, but the three guys I interviewed before, they figured out a way to work through the crisis. Um, are you going to be one of those employees that basically takes the low-hanging fruit? Or are you going to see somebody who's going to be there for the long haul? You're going to up your signaling value if you work through this particular crisis. Well, that's really good advice. So now, now let's go to the other end of the spectrum, Joe. So um, you're wealthy and you actually already have everything. The problem is, is everything's going down in value right now. And it's just 
painful to watch all that effort that you put into creating all that wealth. Uh, what should, what, I mean, I know this is not, you don't know, everybody's got their own unique financial situation, you're a professional, but just generally speaking, if you're, if you have wealth and, and, and your wealth is being attacked, uh, what, what are the best strategies for those times? Well, I think that the, when I said before, do an inventory for poor people, they need to inventory themselves and get a feel for what exactly that they have. The, the advice is exactly the same for people who are wealthy, do an inventory to ensure that the assets in your estate are organized in such a way that they're meeting your objectives. Now for most of our clients is that uh, they're obviously very concerned about uh, the values of their stocks. But most of our retired clients who are wealthy, they don't have all their money in stocks. They have their money in bonds, they have their money in rental real estate, they have their money in gold, they have their money in cash. And many of our clients, they're, they're, they're organized in such a way, Dave, that they're never gonna be forced to sell an investment at a time not of their choosing. So they can wait out the storm. And I certainly learned this in 2000, 2001, and 2002 with my retired clients back then, because it was three back-to-back -back years where the stock market was going down and yet folks still needed income. Well, what we did essentially is when those CDs came due, instead of living off the interest of those CDs, we sold the CDs and used the cash and left the stocks alone. And then we saw that nice run up from 2003 all the way up through 2008, uh, they were able to regain. And then in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, did the same thing again, is that we stopped selling stocks and started selling the bonds and CDs when they came due or, or just sold them in the marketplace because they're up in value. So for folks who have some funds, what I would suggest they do is maybe go and see a, a financial planner like Coco Enterprises <laughs> and, uh, and just sit down and do an assessment to ensure that the, the assets in your estate uh, are, are going to be weatherproof. Is that uh, We tell folks all the time, we're not in the business of predicting um, thunderstorms, we're in the business of, of, of building arcs. And it's quite possible that uh, you've got a portfolio and a family estate that's well organized, but maybe not. Maybe there's some things you need to be doing because things might be getting better, they might get worse in the short term, and what you want to do is you want to make sure you have an all-weather account. So the wealthy, you need to make sure that the investments and the assets you own are actually protecting you instead of hurting you. That's sound advice. So now this is one that, so I'm, I'm a mortgage broker, so I know a lot of realtors and even some new mortgage brokers. So a lot of folks were, I mean, we were in an environment literally just three months ago where it looked like everybody could make money in real estate and mortgage. I mean, it was just like sign up. There's people ready to uh, get these deals. And so it was, it was a good time to be in it if you were brand new three months ago. So imagine you're one of these new folks and, and just within the last 12 months, you actually quit your job and you are now out there on commission and then right in front of you is a economy that's about to implode. And um, obviously things are gonna be different on the other side for that person. What's the best thing they can do to um, do the best they can? I know some of it you addressed already, but just uh, what would you do if that was you and you wanted to still succeed in this new career endeavor, but man, you, you, you're realizing it's not gonna be as easy as you thought it was gonna be. Well, I think the first thing I would do is I'd start working half days, 12 hours. So in other words, instead of working 40 hours a week, I'd be working 70, 80 hours a week. 
because uh, what you got to do is you got to prime the pump. And the fact is that yes, uh, the, the real estate market might be having difficulties, but there's going to be buyers and there's going to be sellers. And you and I both know that we rarely get paid for the marketing and hard work we do today this, the same day. So whatever work you do now, you get paid six months from now. So three months ago when things were rocking and rolling, the reality was we were not working that hard. And so what's happening is that we're not seeing the business because of the work we weren't doing before because it was just walking in the front door. So in order to improve the odds of us succeeding, you gotta, you gotta build up your game. You gotta start working more. Yeah, I've been to your class on, uh, Joe, by the way, usually once a year does a fantastic class on sales strategy. And uh, one thing I remember from that class that you just brought up was when you're new, um, assuming that the business isn't rolling in, you have the most time to go out and get yourself established. And then when you're busy, you don't really have that much time to do that. So I, what I hear you saying is, 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 is navigate your cash well and use this time to, to do that pounding the pavement because probably also, I didn't hear you say this, but in my mind, a lot of the other people aren't going to be doing it right no. now. R right, right now, a lot of, uh, a lot of business people, they're, they're crawled up underneath their desk and they're sucking their thumb. <laughs> and so there's yet, there's less economic activity, but there's also less people providing the services that, that customers need. Now, here's an example that from 1994 through 2000, the stock market was doing very, very well. But if you remember, the, the Fed, the, the Federal Reserve, was raising interest rates. So for people who bought bonds in, say, 1992, 1993, 1994, when interest rates were low, interest rates spiked. They went up like 2% and bonds got hammered. So a lot of retired clients who had bought a lot of bonds... Their, their investments were down in value and their advisors were not calling to talk to them. So I'm out knocking on doors as the new guy at exactly the same time that interest rates were up. So clients were coming in and, or I was seeing these clients on their, on their doorsteps and saying, they were, they were complaining, oh, my broker sold me this bond and it's now selling for 80 cents on the dollar. And I go, well, can I take a look at it? And uh, so it's a Tennessee Valley Authority bond or it's a treasury bond paying say four and a half percent but we now have bonds that are paying 7.5%. Because I was there on the doorstep, they were interested in the bonds that I was selling. And back in those days, you could sell fixed annuities at 7%. In fact, we call them bond fund repair kits because people's bond funds were down. They could take the proceeds, put them in these things, and in seven years, we could replace what they had lost in, the, in their other investments. Now, it wasn't a matter of me having any sort of uh, financial genius. It was just me being out knocking on doors when other people were crawled up underneath their desk in the fetal position at the same time. So in times like this, if you just started a sales position, work harder. So we have a stay at home order, but regardless of that, you got a phone and you got an email account and you could just be going after it right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you ever use Pulp Directory when you started your business? You know, that was something I, I sold you maybe uh, 17 or 18 years ago. Oh, that must, that must be you. Okay, right. It was you. You loved it. You're my first customer that got I sold it for about a year and I was actually struggling to sell it. And when I met Joe... He was like, oh, I love the Polk Directory. And I was like, oh, thank God, because I don't even know how to sell this thing. But tell everybody what it is real quick. Well, the Polk Directory is, is a database of information in your town. And it was incredibly helpful for me when I was out knocking on doors. Because I would knock on a door and I'd try to get people's names and they wouldn't give it to me. 
but it didn't matter because they had the information already because it's in the Polk directory. It'll tell you who owns the property, the phone number, how long they've lived there, whether they're working or whether they're retired, how many people live in there. So there's a lot of uh, demographic information in that. So it was a little eerie because people didn't give me their information, but I went back, used the Polk directory to send them a thank you note. And, so, I, and I notice nowadays you can get most of that stuff online through a lot of different sources. So it's definitely possible to gain a lot of information uh, to follow up with clients or before you meet them. There, there might be more whiz-bang opportunities, but the point is is that if you're stuck at home, be stuck at home working. Yeah. And, uh, and use uh, that, those, those assets because, quite frankly, things are a lot better now because you can actually meet people. They have cell phones now. Where they, In the old days, when I first started, most people just had one phone in their kitchen. And if they weren't home, they didn't get your messages. And now we've got Skype, we've got FaceTime, we've got Facebook Messenger, we've got Zoom. There's all sorts of ways that we can connect with clients. We, we can't use this pandemic as an opportunity to say, well, I can't do anything. Uh, agreed. So um, three different scenarios, three different kind of strategies. Um, a lot of people have a family, so if you could real quick, and I know you and I talked before this, uh, you didn't, didn't necessarily have the amazing answer for us, but uh, what do you recommend for um, getting a family on board for uh, whatever these plans are that you need to make it through the uh, tough financial time? Well, the main thing is that you have got to be optimistic is that you can't be coming home after a hard day at the office uh, where people told you no and, and have gloom and doom because uh, the family is taking their, their signals off of your, um, uh, your confidence. And if you walk around with your shoulders slumped over and you're pouting all the time, uh, you're giving bad gas to your family. And instead of focusing on what the customers are doing, you got to focus on what you're doing. Focus on your activity. So one of the things that I used to do is I used to say, okay, if I make 150 contacts where I actually ask people to do business with us, I'm knocking off as soon as I do that. Now, sometimes I was able to do that on Friday afternoons, and sometimes I have to do that on Sunday evenings because for one reason or another, to get all those calls in. But after a while, I learned that I really wanted to spend time with my family. So I got my 150 contacts in as efficiently and as rapidly as possible. Now, I could not control whether people said yes or no, Dave but I can control whether or not I ask them to do business with me. And in difficult times, and you know this too, is that it's really easier to be purveyors of great information. So we'll call up people on the phone and say, hey, I got this great information for you, Dave, and I wanted you to know about it. And you say, geez, thanks, Joe, I really appreciate this great information. And 30 seconds after I leave, it goes in the cylindrical file, right? But if you really wanna up your success, you can't just leave people great information. You gotta say, would you do business with me? What is it going to take for me to do, to do business with me? Because if you do that, you will increase the odds of people doing business with you exponentially. So to get your family on board, be optimistic. Now, Linda's credit, when we came here, she was instrumental in helping to reduce our expenses. Now, to tell you how, how in, intense we were, is that we had one car in those days, and Linda got the car on Wednesdays. So the rest of the week, I had the car for doing business, going door to door. So on Wednesday, she would drive me in the office early in the morning. The kids were in the pajamas. I get the office about 6.30. And uh, she'd have the car, and that's where she'd do her grocery shopping and take the kids to the park and all that sort of thing. But um, we had one car. Uh, Linda would, uh, she'd bake her own bread. 
and uh, make our own pizza dough and make our own crackers. And uh, I literally went down to the Equity Feed Supply Store in Kalispell and I bought bags of wheat that I grinded and, uh, and, and, and made into homemade flour. Bought 50 pound bags of, of oats. And when I bought it from the guy, I said, hey, is this stuff fit for human consumption? And the guy says, uh, well, if it's good enough for horse races, it's good enough for you. <laughs> now, I, I know that may sound a lot extreme for some of our listeners, but the fact is that we, we bought a 50 pound bag of oats in those days for $5.50. And that was pretty much my breakfast for about a year. So take $5.50 and divide it by 365 days. Um, we learned how through creativity to truly reduce our expenses so that we give the business enough time to, to succeed. Um, now, eventually, you can't do this forever. So you, I always say starting a business or, or starting a new enterprise is like trying to collect pearls on a breath hold. So you're, you're, you're on the surface and you take a breath of air and then you dive down and try to get as many pearls as you possibly can before you have to come back up to the surface again. Don't be messing around on your breath hold. While you're on your breath hold, don't be looking at fish, be gathering pearls. And what that means is be working. So if you wake up in the morning, instead of uh, you know, checking your emails and, uh, uh, and, and checking all the reports and, uh, and, and trying to figure out what font should be on your business cards, do the work necessary to feed your family. And if your family sees you doing the smart work, that's gonna help their confidence. So, so get the family on board, but then uh, do the work so that eventually they're going to be uh, rewarded for their work and helping you get through the tough time. Um, my, my family made a lot of sacrifices 25 years ago, um, but they're now enjoying the fruits of those sacrifices today. Awesome. Well, hey, Joe, um, we're going to wrap it up here. And I just uh, really want to thank you for providing some wisdom, a lot of good nuggets of wisdom in there. And if anybody uh, knows Joe, like he, he's very willing to, to get, he has his professional business, but he, he dedicates time to help people of any walk of life. Would that be correct to say like you, you make time for anybody that uh, needs to know what to do and, uh, and he knows what to do. So I really appreciate you coming in here, Joe. Thanks, Dave. I, I really enjoyed myself this morning. And good luck to everybody out there. I know this is uh, going to be tough for a few people. And um, I, I will make the same pledge uh, if, if you need help and you want to reach out to me. Like, I, I definitely want to talk to people before they make major decisions that might affect uh, them, them long term and uh, try to help you make a great choice. And uh, thanks for listening to Making It Work in Montana. And thank you, Joe. Thanks. Mm-hmm.